All right, we are on the Bridge Podcast here, and I'm excited to bring back Andres Gomez Emilson uh, from the Qualia Research Institute. This is the first round two episode of the Bridge Podcast, and it's episode 43. So, um, you know, prime number for uh, this prime guy. Uh, welcome back, Andres. It's good to have you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, wow, like 43. That's uh, that's a bunch since uh, since we chatted. Yeah. Um, I, I was slow for a while, and then I sped up, and uh, yeah, found found a good pace. So um, excellent, excellent. So, yeah, you know, as you remember, last time we talked about your eight models of qualia, um, you know, part of the harmonic society thing. And um, you know, since then I've been watching these like monologue videos you've been doing on YouTube, and you know, reading your articles, reading Mike Johnson's articles, um, and it's you know such cool stuff. And so I have like kind of like a just a huge list of random stuff that we can go through. Um, to talk about but um generally i open asking about people's coffee preferences but i got that last time unless you have any sort of update to your coffee preferences <laughs> um have, have they changed at all uh do you, maybe yeah actually i think like um well i now brew coffee every day uh, rather than only drink instant coffee. Uh, yeah. I guess like, I mean, instant coffee is like extremely pragmatic and like very efficient and not too terrible, but <laughs> there, there is a qualitative improvement. And uh, I do, I do prefer what I'm doing now. And uh, I was just like sampling through like a bunch of possibilities. And I, I wouldn't say like I have developed any taste for any particular coffee. I'm. Mm. Um, a relative beginner when it comes to like actually knowing what you're drinking for sure um however it seems like in the meantime you've become quite the perfumer i don't know if that's the the term um <laughs> so i mean like uh you know you your sort of way of starting your talks is usually like the quality of the day and um they're always really interesting but um you know i, I was thinking at, at first like we could do like a tea tasting or a coffee tasting but uh uh some other time uh so i'm curious though uh when did this whole per perfumery thing start for you <laughs> sure so uh I've, I've been fascinated by smell for a long time i mean i would say like i did not pay attention to smell in general when i was a kid except for a trip to france where we went to kind of like some lavender distilleries and i was just like fascinated by lavender i had never smelled lavender and i thought like Oh my gosh like this smell is gonna change the world <laughs> like it, it really feels right like like the difference between a world with lavender and without it <laughs> seems like really significant for right? like you're missing out on something very important um but uh yeah okay like i kind of like didn't pay too much attention to it for a while then when i was a teenager i used to go to perfume stores and just like sample everything out of curiosity but i i did not do it like in a systematic way i did not like learn about it um uh, I don't know. I've read the perfume, uh, uh, but I, you know, I, I didn't investigate very much or like practice or anything. Um, but uh, recently, I would say like th three years ago or so, yeah, I decided to kind of like start collecting essential oils, kind of like getting a big picture of like actually what's out there in the state space of possible scents. And I guess like it, it really kind of like came about as like uh, the rational. I mean, like the rational really was okay, like there's like a lot of like very relatively like mundane qualia out there that like I think we can like describe in like new and meaningful non-trivial ways um that is like you know maybe literally under people people's nose uh, so so as to, uh, you know so to speak mm -hmm. um 
but and you know like if we can demonstrate that like okay like we can say like really new and interesting things about these like things that like everybody like is acquainted with hopefully you know like that will increase a little bit people's trust in like the you know the fact that like i think that we say like also meaningful things about let's say like exotic states of consciousness like meditation and you know uh high-end kind of like psychedelic journeys and, mm -hmm. and and so on so like um i don't know i guess i guess it kind of makes sense right like if if somebody's really good at describing a scent hopefully you will take their descriptions of dmt more seriously i don't know that's maybe one 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 of the rational um but yeah so like i started collecting essential oils um but uh i didn't really kind of like dive more deeply into kind of like actually mapping out the state space of sense until the lockdown so essentially in the in the lockdown what happened was like okay like there's all of these reports of covid um taking taking uh, people's like sense of smell mm -hmm. um and uh at the time it actually seemed like very likely that it, for, it would be like permanent for a lot of people and and it is permanent for a percentage of people i actually have like a um how do you, like yeah the, the husband of a cousin of mine uh actually has permanently lost the sense of smell mm. it, it it does it does happen uh and, and it was like because of covid um but it it seems to be somewhat rare and most people recover their sense of smell uh at least like 90 percent of it but uh essentially what happened was like okay like i'm like locked down i have a lot more time than than i used to um and uh like i might lose my sense of smell so basically <laughs> that kind of like, like was a, a motivating force for okay like maybe now is the time to actually like take advantage of the fact that i still have a pretty good you know functioning sense of smell it's also worth pointing out that like sense of smell does deteriorate quite a bit over one's lifetime um mm, particularly the, the 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 strength not so much the um strength and sensitivity not so much like the quality of it like i interesting yeah i haven't seen like any research on like i don't know like sour smells become like less um intense relative to like you know like fragrant smells or something like that like i have not seen anything like that but uh it, it might be the case but um it does seem to be that uh you know like from one's 30s essentially the 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 sensitivity to smell starts to decrease uh and at first it's like pretty slow like the difference between like 30s and 40s is like relatively minimal between 40s and 50s you start to see an important difference and then from the from 50s onwards like it starts to decline pretty rapidly uh unfortunately so yeah basically i'm like at my prime or at my peak of like <laughs> you know sensitivity mm -hmm. so like i also thought like okay like let's take advantage of it now so yeah i mean i uh started actually buying um like pure molecules and then as kind of like a challenge to myself i um at the beginning of the journey essentially i, I set myself the the challenge of uh replicating like common sense from scratch without like looking up the formulas so like for example it's like okay like i have like these 120 different molecules that i just bought can I make the scent of lemon with it? Um, and that's like a really fascinating exercise. And like, I, I mean, I, I re definitely recorded like every experiment that I've done. And at, be at the beginning, like I was, I did not know what I was doing in the least, you know, like mixing all these weird chemicals in very weird proportions. Mm -hmm. 
the very strange smells. Uh, but over time, um, I've become essentially, yeah, like quite acquainted with like what is possible in the state specific sense and actually what are the building blocks. I don't know. I, I could talk about it for hours, I think, but, <laughs> but, uh, I don't know how interested you are or like what aspect <laughs> of it interests, interests you. So, yeah. Well, um, I'm curious, uh, just real quick is seeing some of the talk on Twitter about the loss of scent. Um, some people have mentioned that, you know, you can, you know, restore it with LSD. I'm curious what your credence is on that. Yeah. I mean, I think there, there's quite a bit of anecdotal data in the positive direction. Um, I know of at least one person for whom it did not work. Okay. And it's quite likely that, um, there's a bias, you know, for like actually reporting or like amplifying the messages of, of the people for whom it did work. Um, my suspicion is that it, like if rigorous research were to be done on it, like something like maybe like 10% of the people would, uh, actually recover it with that method. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't, I don't, I really doubt it's like a magic bullet. Um, because yeah, I think like if we would know about it, it would be like, yeah, I mean, like people have lost their sense of smell also with like just the flu, right? Like, and, and, and my sense is like, yeah, if like LSD was like a really reliable way of recovering it, it would be like a well-known thing. If it is something like, okay, 10% of people get that, then it's like, okay, like rare, rare enough that like it, it makes sense only now that would be amplified. Um, yeah, Mike actually was working on a little piece about like why and try to explain it through like neural annealing and a few other like concepts that like we haven't really talked about very much um but uh it is a very interesting kind of um hmm, like essentially like there might be a very interesting mechanism of action for like how that happens um but also it could be like a very mundane thing like it could be like something biochemical but uh hmm. if it is like a very interesting like Neural, neural annealing effect, it would be a fascinating like topic of research because yeah, definitely. It, it would essentially be <laughs> metaphorically, it would be about like, in a sense, how to reinflate a collapsed um, set of harmonics or like, yeah, basically how to reinflate is that full dimensionality to like a network that has collapsed its dimensionality. That's more or less how we were thinking about it. But uh, yeah, we, as I said, like we haven't really written very much about that that theory. Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I checked out some of the Luca Turin stuff. Um, it seems like he took down some of those lectures from YouTube. Or I only saw like lesson one or whatever. But um, yeah, this idea of the it was it the vibrational theory of olfaction? Is that his term? Yeah. Um, I thought that's that's an interesting sort of uh way that you know you could look at it that's similar to music and like hearing you talk about losing your sense of smell gradually makes me think of you know how similar that is to losing your sense of hearing maybe you can still distinguish you know 50 hertz versus or not 50 but like you know 100 hertz versus 150 hertz but uh with lower volume or something like that um but maybe this uh question of olfaction is a good way to get into sort of symmetry theory of valence as well as music generally speaking um because that's most of what i want to talk about i guess um so um, when I see you talking about some of these aromas and stuff, you've said like higher entropy, lower entropy. I'm familiar with the concept of entropy and like Shannon to some extent, but what exactly do you mean um, when you say like, this is a, uh, a higher entropy aroma? Yeah, 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 for sure. So um, what's going on there is uh, 
so like one key piece of background is that there is um, essentially different kinds of alloys. So like most alloys are essentially like very high proportion of like one metal and then like, uh, you know, a spr sprinkling of like a few other metals. So steel is like some, you know, like at least 99% iron and then like a little bit of carbon. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, like most most alloys have been like that historically. Uh, and mostly because there really hasn't been like any good theory for like how to mix a lot of metals together. Um, but like more or less recently, like researchers have actually started kind of like investigating what happens when you mix like way more, you know, metals together mm -hmm. uh, with experiments like, for example, combining like 20 different metals uh, simultaneously. Um, and uh, yeah, if you combine 20 metals, like they don't form a uniform phase essentially what happens is that you get kind of these um sprawling um clustering of, of different metallic phases uh interlocking with one another but then if you like kind of like zoom in you can like discern like crystals uh, and the crystals will actually be made of like the same phase meaning like the same geometric structure um and those crystals will generally be like made of like a lot of different metals. So like what you can do is then kind of like look at what is the proportion of the metals in those crystals and then just kind of like make a big batch with only those metals in those proportions. And then you will form like actually a metallic phase that like it's all of those metals are like actually part of the same geometric structure. And uh, and those are called essentially high entropy alloys because one way of talking about entropy is essentially what is the information content in it how, how much um like how much information do you need to describe it and with what like margin of error right like okay. to a first approximation like steel it's just iron right so in that sense like saying like oh like this is iron approximates it really well but if you have something that is like 20 percent uh of like five different metals um saying any one of those metals is not like actually giving you that much information about like the full the full uh, alloy so in that sense it has a high kind of a description length right so in, in that sense it's a high entropy it's a high entropy alloy um and uh similarly sorry do you have it mm. oh no no go ahead okay then uh, <laughs> yeah uh similarly with uh with smells uh essentially what uh, i realized is that most perfumes um Tend to have like a profile where you can essentially approximate what the perfume smells like with a relatively simple description i mean like there's like a lot of perfumes that you can say let's say yeah this is like uh cedar wood and rosemary and like okay like those two things or like you know will cover <laughs> mm -hmm. 80 percent of like whatever that smell is uh you know similar to like saying like yeah this is made of iron but no it's actually iron and carbon like you just need to Kind of like um you, you you need to expand the description if you want like to get really accurate but like you have already like a decent description so when you have what i describe as a high entropy alloy and uh, i don't know if i have a maybe maybe this one i actually just happen to have this uh, laying around this might be a high entropy alloy um and uh essentially what happens with that is that there's no simple description you can give uh that will actually kind of uh cover the the bulk of what it is about so like for this one i i wouldn't be able to say like oh this is like rose this is because it's not a rose perfume like if i say this is a rose perfume 
you will get like maybe like 20% of an idea <laughs> of what this okay. smells like. Um, and and the thing the, the thing though is that like it's I, I don't mean high entropy actually in perfumes in terms of like the molecular composition because you could have like something that is like molecularly very complex but sensorially very simple like okay. you can have like this you know something made of a hundred molecules but it's like yeah this smells exactly like lavender and that would be a low entropy uh, and you could actually have like something made of like very few molecules and still smell really complex and like rich and and, and difficult to describe like there is this one molecule called a uh, uh Algrumet alde, uh, aldehyde light, um, which it's a is a very bizarre molecule because it's just one molecule, but it smells like sweet and sour and soapy and ethereal and it's just like this very complex thing. And um, just a, a perfume made of that and a couple more molecules might already be a high entropy perfume. Um, uh, yeah. A anyway. Uh, I, I think a lot of it in terms of kind of, um, um, you know, like cellular automata, like if you look at like the, the space of possible rules in cellular automata, there's like a lot, a huge region where like nothing interesting happens. And then maybe there's like a sliver in parameter space where like, oh, you actually have like life or you have like interesting structures emerge. And so like actually small differences in that sliver, like matter a lot, right? It's like, okay, you change the parameter slightly and then different creatures, different animals <laughs> are possible in that, in that uh, cellular automata. I think it's the same with the smell. Essentially, there's like a lot, huge regions of how you can combine molecules that will produce like uninteresting like scents or like scents that are just kind of variations on the same theme. And then you have like some like small range of like proportions for molecules where like tiny changes will kind of like generate like very different chaotic effects in, in your factory bulb um and that's that's like where it gets really interesting and that's usually where like high entropy alloys leave uh and yeah just to give an example like uh i i also have yeah the, this one is like a fairly straightforward high entropy alloy because you can say it smells like bergamot but again like that's only like 20 30 percent of what it's about so yeah hopefully that cl clarifies it I think so. Um, it, this makes me think of like you, you were talking about like the recipe versus the review, I think. Um, so is it saying essentially like with a simpler recipe, you, the review is more complex or vice yeah. versa? Yeah, that would be, it's a, that's a very related framework for sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. So like, and, and actually that, that that's really interesting. So there's this uh, uh, phenomenon I call scent factorization. Um, not very formal. I'm sure there's a better way of talking about it, but I mean, essentially, um, like if you smell a particular essential oil, it may smell like, okay, like this smells like both soapy and like citrusy, let's say. Um, and then you smell a different essential oil and it's like, oh, this smells like soapy and flowery. And like, well, okay, this, a different one smells like soapy and fruity or something. Okay. Like if you combine all of those together, the soapy character, maybe the only thing that is in common. And all of a sudden, like when with the actual mixture, it will smell like soapy plus white noise or like soapy plus like, okay, like this indescript, like very generic mixture of a lot of things that kind of like gets averaged out and it doesn't really capture your attention. Okay. So I call that like scent factorization. In a sense, you're putting a lot of things together that share the same facet and 
the other things kind of average themselves out. Um, so that's why uh, you can actually have like something that is made of a lot of molecules, but it smells very simple because in a sense, all of those molecules share some attribute and the non-shared component gets averaged out. So, so that, that's why like, yeah, I mean the recipe for a very simple smell could actually be very complicated and the other way around. Interesting. Okay. Um, so this makes me think of like chords and when you combine different frequencies and they have different uh, sort of ways that they resonate together. <clears throat> um, and I know that like, you know, like a perfect fifth in music is like a two to three ratio, et cetera. Is there like, um, like, are you relating these molecules harmonically in any way? Or like, is that having to do with them having that sort of, uh, you know, resonance with one another? Yeah, that's a definitely like a very tricky question. Um, I mean, I think like, <laughs> I would say that I, I, I do believe that I have a, a sane theory of, 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 of smells. <laughs> um, and it's like kind of non-trivial to explain it, but like, I'll, I'll do my best, like in a short amount of time. So essentially, uh, like, yes, I, I, I do believe the olfactory, sorry, the, the vibrational theory of olfaction, uh, like makes sense. And I suspect it, it it's actually correct. Um, and the reason I, I, I think so is that like after experimenting a lot with molecules, I essentially do agree with Luca Turin that functional groups actually smell like something that, uh, if you have a, a molecule, that's an aldehyde, it, it doesn't matter what's, what it like, how it is shaped. As long as it has an aldehyde and it has like any perception, perceptual, perceptible smell, it will smell like an aldehyde vibe. Um, and the same with like, uh, alcohols and esters and molecules with sulfur. And, uh, essentially the particular bonds, uh, of molecules that have like these functional groups will have a particular resonant frequency. And essentially if you look at how they vibrate, um, and there's like, yeah, all of these like fascinating software where you can put in the, you know, the shape of a molecule and it will show you like what its vibrational modes are. Um, well, it turns out that, yeah, some of the vibrational modes have to do with essentially what are the bonds present and a functional group will determine that. So if you look at the spectrum of a molecule, part of it has to do with what are the functional groups in it. Um, now, why would you be able to smell that? Well, the, the answer that Lucaturin came up with is that essentially particular vibrational modes function as um, basically like energy jumps or like a, 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 energy, yeah, like en energy um, um, differences where like an electron can essentially um, dispose of potential energy if it has the appropriate resonant frequency. Um, mm -hmm. And so in that sense, like what actually receptors are doing, receptors um, of scent are doing, there's like two things. One, the molecule has to be appropriately shaped to actually enter into the receptor, but then it actually also needs to have the appropriate vibrational mode so that the, an electron can essentially use that as kind of like a, an energy jump um, in order to discharge energy. Gotcha. So essentially it's kind of um, like, I mean, imagine kind of like a, a like a credit card or something like that, right? Like you need two things. A, it has to be the right shape. Like it has to actually fit in kind of like one of these like reading slots. Um, and B, it has to have the right information. So it's something like that, like uh, a molecule to smell a particular way. It has to have the right shape to feed into the receptor. And then it also needs to have the right vibrational mode. So the receptor recognizes it. Um, 
And how potent it is might have to do with the shape, but then the quality has to do with the resonant vibrational modes. Um, that is not to say, though, that the actual smell will have anything to do with the vibrational mode. And like okay. the vibrational mode, all it's relevant here is to activate the receptor. But then there's still like actually physiologically, there's like three layers of neurons of neural processing between activating a receptor and that, you know, having any kind of like influence on the activity in the olfactory bulb. So the, the, the full story is that I, I, I actually very, very strongly believe that the phenomenology of scent has to do with vibrational modes, but I think it has to do with vibrational modes of the olfactory bulb and how those relate to the central nervous system. Interesting. Which is different than saying like that we can actually perceive the vibrations of the molecules. So there's right. because there's actually like several layers of interaction between those two things. Interesting. Okay. Um, damn, that's complicated and uh, deep stuff. <laughs> um, I'm curious uh, to just go back to the uh, you know conversation that we had last time about the eight uh, modes of you know uh, artistic qualia. I'm curious if you've added any models to that list. Hmm. Not explicit. I mean, I, I would say that that at least works really well as a overarching kind of a framework for making sense of art. Um, what we have definitely kind of developed a lot further is um, kind of like thinking of different aesthetics and like kind of like how you can use aesthetics for coordination, how you can use aesthetics for actually like, you know, like presenting different like ways to reduce suffering or or ways of being happy like what does it mean to be happy like different aesthetics have like will will have like different opinions about that um but uh as such i think like a formal theory of art i think like it's what we had like is pretty decent i don't think we we need to update that but but kind of like with that as a framework as kind of a foundation exploring different aesthetics is yeah something that we have been doing quite a bit gotcha cool um well, you know, I mentioned this is episode number 43, and um, so I wanted to see if, you know, uh, you could tell me a little bit about um, prime number qualia. And, uh. Um, uh, you know, I spoke actually with Bill Sotheris after um, seeing your thing about him and numerology. Oh, and, you talked uh, to him? Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I should I, watch that, yeah. Yeah, I've been on a, a long kick of, um, like, conversations with microtonal people, and I know oh, he's my in goodness. that sort of zen tonality world, but... Um, yeah, uh, I mean, I mentioned to you on Twitter, um, Harry Parch and his music, which is tuned on a 43-tone system, which mm. is kind of weird. Um, but then I also spoke to um, David Rothenberg, who does this interspecies collaboration with, like, whales and cicadas. He has albums collaborating with cicadas. And so um, <laughs> it, when I talked to him, we were talking about how they have their 17-year cycle and, you know, kind of, like, the different theories of why that might be. And some people were saying, like, maybe the prime number makes it like you know better for them in avoiding prey and i'm curious if you have any take on that yeah sure <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot um well first of all congratulations on having interviewed william sather is i uh i i definitely would love to talk to him at some point uh i'm very curious about what he thinks of like yeah for example symmetry theory of villains uh mm -hmm. would be a good conversation to have with him but um no, that's awesome. Um, what is the name of the, the musician you, you sent me again? Oh, um, his name is David Rothenberg. Yeah, yeah, I listened to quite a few of, of his songs. Um, and I thought it was fascinating, like, 
essentially he seems to like what I would describe as like surfing. Oh, so the... uh, you're talking about uh, Harry Parchet, I think. Sorry. Oh yeah, yes, that's right, Harry Parchet. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Uh, he likes to. Sorry. Uh, and, and also, by the way, I'm uh, recording separately, so I can send you the audio file uh, cool. afterwards. So, Thank without you. interruptions. <laughs> so, um, Harry Parchet. Yeah. So, I think like he he likes to surf the edge of musicality. Is the the way I would describe it. That is kind of like starts to generate some quasi-rhythmic patterns that like gives you the suggestion like oh wow like there's like some musicality here and then he kind of like deflates that pattern like it doesn't happen and then like he, he's kind of like surfing that edge like constantly and i think it's really interesting and and in a sense like yes i do think there is this threshold for what musicality is so essentially you do need, require kind of a threshold of like melodic coherence and repetition or rhythmicity in order to kickstart some kind of like rhythmic interlocking within brain harmonics mm -hmm. that like feels good and it's like okay yeah this is kind of like a good foundation for like a mood for example and uh yeah some musicians seem to kind of like play with uh like ah, i got it or you don't like it's kind of there um so so yeah that's that's really interesting now um when it comes to like prime numbers um yeah so so daniel tamet is a uh savant uh with autism, but like what's really fascinating about him is that also he is like has kind of like an average verbal ability, um, which is like rare for people with kind of like that cognitive style. Like there's even like a lot of like nonverbal uh, like autists that have like a very heavy synesthesia and like, you know, interesting like, yeah, abilities to process numbers and, and things like that, but they can't speak. So like we can't actually, you know, like know what the experience is like. Whereas, uh, yeah, Daniel Tamati is unusual for that reason that like at least he has like average you know like verbal skills um and you can ask him like what is it like to like actually you know like solve one of these these problems so uh the kind of problems that he likes to do are for example like memorizing like very large strings of numbers uh, and he does it very quickly and very efficiently um another thing that he likes to do is like you know very simple arithmetic computations like okay like what is the product of these two numbers or you know what is the um di division between these two numbers and basically he says that in all of these cases he actually experiences this as a synesthetic kind of a computation that like when he memorizes a number he's actually constructing a multi-sensory object that is being fine-tuned to fit all the properties of the number so like for example when he memorized pi he actually has kind of this weird synesthetic structure that represents pi and is like very detailed and it has kind of like you know curves and twists of different colors and the more digits he memorizes the more detailed and and structured it becomes um so that is like one example of in, in one way is kind of like quality computing being used for a new and exotic application It's like okay let's let a brain that is actually generating these like complex multi-sensory um uh representations that then are actually finely tuned such that you can combine them and they actually interact in a lawful and computationally useful way so like whatever is going on in his brain is like really interesting from the point of view of qualia research um yeah, 
And uh, he also describes that he has the ability to intuitively determine whether a number is prime. And uh, essentially, you can give him a fairly large number, like let's say like a six-digit number or something like that, seven-digit number. And uh, he kind of feels it around. And uh, and he says that, yeah, after a while, like it either kind of like factorizes into like different subcomponents that are themselves like made of synesthetic um, structures or he realizes that it's a prime number and like when supposedly when he actually feels that it's a prime number it's kind of like a big explosion of senses because his brain is like realizing that like okay this is like a unique like new thing that cannot be decomposed into like building blocks it actually kind of like stands as, as, a, as a whole and i think that's uh that's fascinating i think like that's uh something very worth uh thinking more about like how you know like what's one of the fascinating things about like actually having bound experiences like actually having like unified moments of experience is that there is like an irreducible quality to it that like the actual unity of it the actual um the fact that all the information is coming together at once um cannot be fundamentally reduced <laughs> to kind of like okay just these atoms interacting with one another you, you actually have kind of these like irreducible structure and you know these synesthetic prime numbers would be kind of like an extreme example of this is like uh essentially these um gems in the state space of consciousness that are completely hidden and you have to actually search them in a very very systematic way with a finely tuned process and yeah i mean my my what I imagine is that, yeah, like the particular experience that Daniel Tammet might have for like a prime number of seven digits is an experience that has never existed in the universe because it, you know, that particular irreducible qualia representation, it's, it's just like so difficult to find. It's something that, yeah, essentially it's kind of hidden in the state space. And so, hmm. yeah, anyway, so I think that's maybe something interesting to say about prime numbers. Totally. Um, it it's very like uh, I have on the list basically talking about some animal consciousness stuff, but um, it, I mean, it, do you feel like the the idea of like a seventeen year cycle for cicadas? Like, what what do you think about that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think uh, special. I'm I'm sure there's something, um, and uh, I suspect it is like avoiding um, interlocking with like some other like natural rhythm. Uh, yeah, essentially, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, like you don't want to enter in a uh relationship with like a predator that like it will have like the same um cycle as yours so that like okay when there's like a population explosion of cicadas it will also be a population explosion of like hawks or something. I, I don't know what it's them but like yeah uh, the, whatever like is uh, the main predator um so it would make sense that uh, they would actually like figure out a way to create something that is very difficult to interlock with um that it would make sense it would be evolutionarily adaptive and uh, in my sense, is like we we probably will see things of that nature all like all over the place. Like, like for example, what is camouflage? Like camouflage in, for example, like insects. My my sense is that a lot of it it's actually about like hiding symmetries because mm. if <clears throat> you are like a you know an insect, you have like a lot of symmetrical structures and properties. Um, 
those kind of like repeating patterns are something that yeah like a, a visual system can identify it's like oh like okay th that must be an insect because it has like six legs and those six legs look, look the same <clears throat> but with camouflage uh it tries to break those symmetries um and in in that way yeah it is kind of like trying to jam or, or prevent kind of like harmonic interlocking <laughs> from some other sense modality from another species um and yeah i, I imagine actually that will also in general be somewhat related to prime numbers because um it's kind of like the least repeating patterns that you can find gotcha yeah i mean in music it seems like um as you go up the overtone series like each new prime number is like a new tonal identity because if you keep on just doing octaves or if you do composite numbers um then you're essentially just getting redundancies right so like um it's like that's how you would add tonal character maybe but um Anyway, um, so, you know, I, I mentioned yesterday on Twitter that I'm a metrosexual in that I am attracted to metronomes. Um, <laughs> got one right here. Uh, but <laughs> this reminds me you know, of your post that you did about um, the dark rooms in, you know, uh, collaboration with uh, Astral Codex 10 and like, you know, metronomes as like a perfect source of symmetry sort of. Yeah. But also, um, you know, brings me to that. I think it's called The Future of Neuroscience that Mike Johnson wrote. And that, that article just like, hit me and i was like that this guy gets it yeah um, and yeah, so the yeah. notion of e and q um i'm sort of curious about this and like i did a little brief presentation for guitar stuff about like how to practice with a metronome very slow and i referenced mike johnson because it's like if you're able to stay in a rhythm with a metronome that's going say 20 beats per minute which is like that's a slow slow tempo yeah then like you're actually able to entrain to something pretty adaptively so um, I, I felt like maybe that's an interesting heuristic for that, but um, I, I'd be curious to hear more thoughts on ENQ and NAQ. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I guess, like, first of all, um, yeah, metronomes, um, what I was talking about with uh, Scott Alexander, when essentially he was saying, like, okay, like, if you do believe, like, in this symmetry theory valence, doesn't that entail that like if you just listen to a very simple tone or like a metronome like that's gonna be the happiest or like the, the you know highest valence experience and like he was puzzled by that and uh and skeptical um but i basically i just explained like well yes actually like if you do actually enter you know into a state of absorption um like very very high level of concentration listening to a pure tone is gonna sound really incredible and like fulfilling i mean like Shenzhen Young talks about like how um, most of what we consider to be pleasure in, in our everyday life is actually grasping. <laughs> mm. And like most people have actually never experienced like unadulterated pleasure, like pleasure without grasping, without craving. Um, so like that's actually like fairly rare and uh, um, highly concentrated states of consciousness can actually experience something very simple in a very satisfying way like that is like very pleasant but also fulfilling and that's a that's a key difference uh and essentially yeah i mean like very very high concentration is needed for that but it is doable and it happens and essentially what you you you, you will see is that people who attain like very very high concentration states they're actually fully satisfied with like even less like for example just empty space like empty space becomes extremely beautiful and yeah, they can experience like literally like a sense of uh, uh, unbounded, like kind of a, a, a spatial awareness field 
that is extremely satisfying. Um, but also, yeah, with a pure tone, with a simple shape, like if you do like a, a, a casino retreat, like looking at a candle flame, like mm -hmm. you don't need you don't need a complex stimuli to be like engrossed by it and, and actually like feeling satisfied by it. Um, so all of that is to say that um, it sounds ridiculous, but <laughs> like extremely high valence states of consciousness can be extremely simple and can mm -hmm. be things of the sort of yeah, I'm just like completely in tune with this metronome. <laughs> um, now, a very important um, conceptual kind of clarification here is that you don't actually become the shape you're synchronizing with. Um, you become actually something weirder. You become what we call the oscillatory complement. Essentially, okay. um, if you're like extremely in tune with a metronome it's not that you become that metronome rather you become something that is perfectly capable of predicting that metronome so interesting uh, imp how, how to, like i don't really have like a great like intuitive description of this but like it's kind of like you're trying to become the thing that is surrounding it that is oscillating in a complementary way so that like whenever it actually sends a stimuli to you you're like meeting it in, in, in perfect tune. So implicitly, yes, you're generating kind of that particular metronome, but actually the, the shape of your consciousness will be something that is not that metronome, it's actually whatever is capable of perfectly predicting it, which may or may not be like super, like a super simple thing. Like usually it will be a very simple thing, but doesn't have to. So uh, as a consequence, it is not the case that the valence, uh, of your experience will essentially be exactly corresponding to the you know information content or whatever you absorb into mm -hmm. because there can be some cases where the thing that you're synchronizing with is very simple but for you to be the oscillatory complement of that thing you you yourself need to be a complex structure um Interesting. and uh yeah, and I think like this actually, like you can see with um, some like, for example, like stroboscopic stimulation that like there's a region of uh, frequencies where you actually experience like some level of complexity in, in the resulting hallucinations. Um, so, for example, like 12 hertz, uh, 12 to 16 hertz, you actually experience kind of like interesting like patterns and structures as opposed to let's say anything about like 40 hertz where actually the the stroboscopic stimulation kind of like becomes like very continuous um uh so so what's going on there in a way is that within that window of frequencies the oscillatory complement of the nervous system is actually a fairly complex thing so sure. even though the stimuli is very simple you don't actually settle on something that is like actually very simple i think also something like that is going on with kind of the difference between DMT and 5-MeO-DMT, that like with DMT, essentially like it activates like some particular metronomes in your, in your, in your brain. Um, and those metronomes like themselves can be fairly simple. Like DMT will have kind of like this like very strong like metronome, like 30 Hertz uh, kind of a stroboscopic stimulation, but the resulting hallucinations are extremely chaotic and complex. Whereas on 5-MeO-DMT, you also have like this like flickering frequency that I think it's a higher frequency. 
and you do like have the ability to synchronize with it in a way that has like very little information. So anyway, I, I know this is like a roundabout way of saying, but uh, ultimately what actually matters is the complexity of you, not the complexity of the stimuli. Gotcha. And in general, there's going to be a correlation with the complexity of the stimuli and the complexity of, you know, what is the oscillatory complement of that stimuli, but it's not always the case. So it's kind of some, some uh, complications. I guess there's a like this weird phenomenon or like a phenomenology of practicing with a metronome. Like when you're finally perfectly in rhythm, the metronome disappears. And yeah. I feel like that's maybe what you're getting at in yep. a sort of reduced way, but um, interesting. Uh, 100%. Yeah, so, so <clears throat> that's exactly, exactly right. So um, if there is kind of like an annoying sound or like an annoying stimuli, uh, there's two things you can do. Uh, a, well, there's, there's actually three. Uh, but like approximately the first approximation, there's like two things. So like a, you can like develop a model internally that is really good at predicting it. Um, and if you actually become like perfect at predicting the stimuli, it fades from your consciousness. Um, you can I, I almost kind of like think about it as like, you know, from a predictive coding perspective mm -hmm. that like what you're conscious of, is essentially what your brain is still having like difficulties predicting <laughs> um, because the things that you actually predict perfectly um, in a sense you, you're kind of like canceling out um, mm -hmm. and um, it's not exactly true because I think you're still conscious it's just that the consciousness actually has like no information content because it's not being disturbed by the stimuli you're like kind of like meeting it and accounting for it every time and in a sense, that makes you an untroubled mind. And an untroubled mind is a high valence mind. It, you know, there, it doesn't feel like much, but it's actually like, yeah, just untroubled. So um, that's one way. But another way of actually not being bothered by a stimuli is to dissociate from it. Um, and that is, in a sense, like all of your attention is focused on kind of like the innermost uh, resonant modes. And yes, you can kind of like be uh, disturbed a little bit, but not enough that it actually will um, disturb the, the the main resonant modes that you're paying attention to. So uh, this is kind of like a, a classic example would be like a ketamine. Like ketamine, for example, I think like partly what it does uh, is uh, decouples the innermost, you know, innermost uh, layers of your central nervous system from the peripheral nervous system and, and the senses and the senses. And by doing that, essentially is allowing you to kind of just focus on the resonant modes of your innermost self <laughs> and not be disturbed by like the 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 prediction errors of the lower layers. Um, and then yeah, I mean there's like a third way of like not being bothered by something which is equanimity. But like that's yeah, a whole other kind of a <laughs> can of worms. Um, but uh but yeah like what you're describing is exactly right it would be kind of like when you become like perfectly good at predicting a stimuli like predicting a metronome it actually kind of disappears and like one of the metaphors that i use here is mm, the, i mean like the only thing that you can actually experience is the interference pattern between your resonant modes if you have like such a simple set of resonant modes inside you that they don't produce an interference pattern. It it's almost kind of like what it's like to be um, a photon from the inside. 
like yes from the outside it looks like you're kind of like doing these like you know circular motion you know you're circular circularly circularly polarized like you're moving kind of this heli um, helical way but from the inside it actually feels like you're perfectly static right like because the the movement is actually only relative to the, to the outside so like why is like from the outside it may look like you're this you know vibrating thing but from the inside it actually feels like you're just a static static structure um because the vibration is something that it, you you can only sense in a relative way gotcha okay you can only sense your own um uh you can only sense your own vibratory modes by the effects they have by the way in which they interface with one another not not intrinsically because gotcha. <laughs> yeah again it's kind of like a a photon cannot perceive its own kind of circular motion yeah interesting okay um it, this is reminding me by the way uh, to just go back to harry parch briefly um so he has these like bowl things like he made his own instruments out of glass and wood and all this and he i guess basically used a process of annealing to tune his uh glass bowls um oh wow it, somewhat unrelated but i just wanted to get that in there before moving on um that's awesome uh i guess like an, a quick note about that um there's a video by uh anders and maggie which are kind of a volunteers from sweden uh at qri well i guess like they're, they're actually officially advisors now um where they they actually demonstrate um how like annealing can actually improve the harmonic properties of metallic bowls uh, i don't know if you saw that video but actually it's... i just watched it before this so oh that's awesome yeah, yeah that's great yeah it was interesting um and I'll, I'll put that link in the description and all that um, yeah uh so uh basically i did this presentation on you know i'm sort of playfully calling it the music of menstruation and i was just trying to view like uh various time cycles in a musical lens and um you know like i had this picture of a waveform up the other day and it almost from a certain angle looked indistinguishable from like stock market charts and so um i was thinking about how like music is largely just this like time-based thing like it's like time is the main substrate uh, even if it's frequency then it's like frequency is still a function of time and i'm curious if this uh you know triggers anything in your mind that you think is interesting like um sort of like making it just about time more well i mean I, i'm so here's the thing like um essentially there's like these dualities in in consciousness and one duality i mean and duality so like in math like oftentimes like dualities mean that there's like two ways of looking at something. There's like two perfectly equivalent descriptions of something. Mm -hmm. So uh, just as an example, like um, uh, a polyhedra, um, uh, you can take its dual by essentially putting like one dot in each face and connecting those dots with uh, lines to the dots of the other faces. So um, that will give you the dual structure of it. And uh, oftentimes, like if you do the same procedure um, to the dual structure, you get the original st structure back. So, okay. and, um, yeah, I mean, like uh, I guess, like uh, an example is like uh, the octahedron and the cube are like duals of each other because if you put like a dot in each of the faces of a cube and you connect them, you get something that actually has like eight triangular uh, faces. Uh, so you're actually kind of like yeah, exchanging essentially like the faces and the um, the vertices uh, with one another. So um, likewise in consciousness, I think there's like a lot of dualities. 
And one of the key dualities that exists in the structure of your experience is between synchrony, like temporal synchrony and spatial symmetry. Okay. So, I mean, if you kind of like look at, okay, like what happens on a, on DMT, <laughs> another, I, I often talk about DMT, one, what ha one of the things that happens on DMT is that you experience like symmetrical 2D structures, especially in like low doses. It's a very reliable effect. You look at a wall and it symmetrifies. Um, and uh, you can actually notice that when it symmetrifies, it simultaneously has a form of vibrating such that any two parts of your visual field that are part of kind of like a slab of symmetry are also in a state of synchrony. So essentially there is this duality between kind of like things vibrating in synchrony and then being spatially symmetrical. So okay. uh, essentially, yes, like music is inherently temporal when it comes to like the way in which it reaches us, like in terms of its okay, like physical structure, how it actually manifests like physically in the world. But if you look at how music affects as you know, central nervous system, I think it actually generates spatial patterns. So um, if you look at kind of like the brain on music at a particular moment in time, it would have like really, really good like neuroimaging to like fully, fully, you know, visualize the harmonic resonant modes of that brain in that precise moment in time. Um, I would essentially predict that like the temporal information of that song will actually be encoded as a spatial structure in the brain in that particular moment in time. So there's really kind of like a, a duality here. And I think like you would be missing out on quite a bit of like what music is, if you only think about it in terms of like temporal structure and not in terms of how it influences spatial patterns. Interesting. Okay. That's very interesting. Um, hmm. We have to chew on that. Um... Yeah. I mean, it is, it is similar to like the, like the uh, cladding plate, really is a, uh, like a vibrating, like metallic plate, um, the spatial pattern of kind of like what, what it looks like to put sand on it, like what that looks like is dual with the frequency mm. of vibration. So by looking at what spatial pattern you have, I mean, and, and most of the ones that you see in kind of, uh, demonstrations will be the most simple ones, which is like, okay, what the spatial pattern looks like, which is one vibrational mode, but, uh, you can actually use like a weighted sum of like these frequencies and you know, the actual shape that you will get will be like a non-trivial interaction between those like resonant modes. So by looking at the shape that you form, you can infer what is the uh, frequencies mm -hmm. with which you are vibrating this plate. So that, that is like a very concrete case where the spatial structure is dual to the actual like temporal information. Interesting. Okay. Um, well, again, gonna have to chew on that. Yeah. Um, let's see here. What else do I have on this list? Um, um, oh yeah. So, um, you know, I, I've shared with you that I have this, uh, death metal project, a limitivist, um, yeah, yeah. and, uh, you know, I, I saw something that you wrote and you mentioned like, and this explains Japan noise and death metal. And so um your your sense of why people appreciate the aesthetic of death metal is that it's more of an energy parameter ma manipulation is that right 
to some extent, yeah. Uh, I would say that's maybe like 30% of like why people listen to death metal. There's like other things too. I mean, like, um, yes, I mean, like a lot of like what music is about is about like modulating the energy parameter. And for that, you actually require like several things. Like you require, for example, um, some degree of unpredictability because essentially like surprises are energizing. There's like a, as a general pattern, <laughs> whenever there's like something surprising, the weather is like positively surprising or negatively surprising. It doesn't matter. Like it's equally energizing. So you can actually produce like a lot of surprises with like fairly unpleasant sounds. And I think like a lot of, yeah, I mean, well, the Japan noise is like a more extreme version of that. Um, the other thing too, is that, um, I mean, essentially when you have like a very rough and dissonant pattern, you can point it at something that is rough and dissonant in your own mind. So if you do have like, you know, things that you're kind of like suffering from, um, I don't know, like a breakup or like feeling of failure, whatever it may be, you can actually use like a very dissonant sound, very harsh sound to, in a sense, like block or cancel or almost kind of a, um, yeah, kind of like mess with those patterns. And the net result can be a, a, a very significant hedonic improvement that like you're substituting, yeah, like a very unpleasant kind of like inner structure for something that is like sensorially rough, but is not as, you know, emotionally unpleasant. Um, so I think there's like a, yeah, another component of it. But then of course there is uh yeah, just kind of the um, um, satisfaction <laughs> that actually comes from getting acquainted with all of these patterns and like over time actually becoming somewhat better at predicting them. So there's kind of also the, you know, hedonic habituation that like, uh, I mean, it's kind of like with a very hot, hot sauces. So like that there is some degree of satisfaction in the capacity to slowly improve on your capacity to improve them. Uh, sorry, to process it without like getting hurt. Gotcha. So I think like likewise with like Japan noise and things like that. Um, there's also a sociological component, which is uh, you're getting some degree of satisfaction by, in a sense, being able to signal that you are like a very tough person. You can like resist, you know, you're like thick skinned. Uh, you can, yeah, I mean, uh, like there's a lot like in art, there's a lot of things like is like, is like um, a lot of the things that supposedly people like are actually just ways for them to show how much abuse they can endure. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, like the mosh beat of a concert or something like that is like, to some extent, like it's, um, uh, yeah, it's interfacing with kind of like an instinctual need to, yeah, signal actually how tough one is. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of like art and like very harsh music is like tapping into that. So, uh, yeah, what else? And yeah, I mean, finally, I mean, I think like even without like any sophisticated like neural annealing, like, just getting the energy parameter high enough in and of itself can like be fairly pleasant. So uh, again, with kind of like a hot sauce metaphor, like very, very spicy hot, hot sauces are like very unpleasant in the mouth, but they can energize all of your bodily sense such that you feel kind of these very pleasant uh, harmonic resonant modes throughout your body. And kind of, you can actually introspect and like, okay, like now waves of energy as, are coming like in a, you know, up and down and up and down. All of that just coming from like, yeah, the hot sauce feeling. So that can be really pleasant. And for some people that might be enough 
to actually overwrite the 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 net negative hedonic tone that comes from the pain alone. Um, and I suspect yeah, with that Japan noise, something like that probably happens. Interesting. Um, I'm I'm curious also um, if you have any sort of steel man of eliminativist theories of mine. Yeah, sure. Uh, that's a definitely a, a whole topic. I mean, I think um, I will definitely say that uh, I think in general, like people who are like drawn to eliminativism um, will generally be like fairly smart, like fairly um, up there when it comes to kind of their yeah philosophical intelligence and like their rigor with which they think. Um, it is just that, I mean, so, so yeah, I mean, in a sense, like it, it is kind of like a signal of being philosophically rigorous um, and kind of like trying to look things from a new perspective, trying to find like a non-trivial description. And uh, I mean, broadly speaking, I, I think there's quite a bit of wisdom in the approach of saying, okay, like our current conception of what consciousness is, of how minds work, really comes from like folk psychology really comes from an evolutionary model an evolutionarily adaptive model of what we are of who we are so what are the chances that that will actually be able to kind of like carve nature at its joints like actually describe what is like truly going on and that if we instead kind of like start from scratch and say well let's not use those terms at all because they're just kind of like how the brain is modeling itself which is not what actually the what the brain is actually doing and let's uh, instead like kind of like ground our vocabulary on uh, like hard science on physics on computational theory then in some sense just kind of like describing the brain without kind of like a top-down prejudice of like what is it that you're going to find mm -hmm. so in a sense you're kind of like removing the the clutter of expectations of all of the kind of like yeah low low grade um evolutionarily adaptive, but unlikely to be scientific uh, priors with which you're analyzing the brain. So there's a lot of wisdom in, in, in all of that. Um, sociologically speaking, you can interpret that as kind of like a philosophical move that is generally actually fairly effective because it's allowing you to not be kind of like hacked by theories of consciousness. And like, th that is the thing though, like, um, it is fairly easy to fall into kind of like a very bizarre and like in some sense like very unscientific account of consciousness and like yes if you were to kind of like cluster actually how people think about consciousness you will see that like yeah actually they have like either like very weird and unscientific views or they kind of like tend towards eliminativism and like it's kind of like bimodal and like the the the, the place in the middle is actually fairly unstable like um yeah, I mean, like, th think of, for example, like, what is the half-life of people thinking uh, rationally about DMT, right? Like, either they kind of, like, have experiences with DMT and they kind of, like, slowly drift towards, yes, believing these are, like, actual aliens from another dimension, or they have DMT and get scared and they kind of, like, say something like, yeah, well, it was just a crazy hallucination, I'm not going to think about it. So the 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 percentage of people who can actually like remain open about like okay what is this um while also acknowledging just like how bizarre it is is like yeah a fairly small percentage and and likewise i think like yeah people who can kind of like have like a really good model of consciousness not based on folk psychology 
but also that doesn't converge on yeah something like eliminativism yeah it's it's kind of difficult um uh and uh yeah a lot of it is kind of a thing like avoiding being hacked by other people's models um but it is kind of like something that is very easy for people to overextend and like not realize that like no actually you can make like meaningful progress and understanding consciousness without becoming irrational uh it's just that there's like relatively few like proofs of concept for that um i will say though that i mean i think like for me, one of the strongest arguments for like why consciousness is not just kind of like a folk psychology term is that there is a kind of like very meaningful way of talking about what is the scope of consciousness? Like what is the range of things that you will classify as like actually part of kind of this consciousness phenomenon? And, uh, and it's very simple. Essentially, whatever can be bound to an experience, I would say that's like, a facet of consciousness or a particular qualia or like a qualia variety so yes like for example like uh audio qualia and visual qualia are like very different like they're almost kind of like from completely different dimensions i mean it's really crazy <laughs> how different like the experience of you know processing audio versus you know processing a visual scene very different experiences but they can both belong to the same experience they can mm. both be part of a unified experience and for that reason, I would say they both belong to the category or to the kind of a the set of qualia, of possible qualia. They're both like facets of consciousness. And that actually, for me, like kind of like really does draw kind of like a, a very natural boundary around like, yes, this is a, a conscious phenomenon, this is a conscious phenomena, or this isn't a conscious phenomena, uh, which is a problem that, yeah, basically eliminativists tend to highlight that it is like, most people don't have a principled way of saying, yes, this is a conscious phenomena. This isn't a conscious phenomena. Um, and on the basis of that, they, they, they can like, yeah, legitimately argue that a consciousness um, as a category. Um, yeah. Which is a, yeah. Ch checking if you're still there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Was I freezing? Oh, okay. Cool. 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 Yeah. That a consciousness as a category, it doesn't carve nature at its joints, right? Like, because it, um, it seems arbitrary from, from that point of view. But with kind of like, yeah, this binding argument, I think like all of a sudden, yeah, there's actually something uh, objective you can say about like, yeah, whether this is a part of the phenomenon of consciousness or not. Um, and uh, also, I would say that uh, for the most part, it is true that things are not what they seem. Like, to a large extent, I almost think that uh, a lot of eliminativists are actually kind of like getting at like indirect realism about mm. perception and like some of them like do realize that like okay like all that you ever experience is kind of like a world simulation inside your brain you never experience the world directly uh, and they realize that like that insight is like fairly rare that like a, you know the typical human lives under the impression and under the assumption that they're perceiving the world directly and right. Kind of like noticing that yeah so few people kind of like realize these you know relatively simple insight um what are the chances that like other of our intuitive models of consciousness have like anything to do with reality so yeah it kind of like makes sense this okay like let's uh throw the baby with the bathwater <laughs> and just say like yeah let's we can't actually meaningfully talk about consciousness from the inside we need a new paradigm um yeah, I guess the, the last thing I'll mention about eliminativism, though, is that 
usually they do leave under the illusion or impression that language about physics, language about computation is kind of um, something that you can talk about without clarifying what consciousness is. <laughs> mm. So, I mean, it's kind of a, it is not the case that like you can talk about mathematics and really like truly understand what it is that you're talking about without eventually bottoming out into talking about consciousness. Gotcha. Um, it's, I think like my, 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 my model that like, if you go deep enough into trying to make sense of physics and math, you will come to the conclusion that they are actually patterns of qualia <laughs> and that hmm. all of mathematics is actually kind of like a systematic study of qualia patterns, uh, also physics. Um, and so like, in some sense, I think like talking about consciousness is truly inescapable. Like in the end, there's no way of actually kind of a, trying to make sense of the universe without first making sense of consciousness. Um, there's no kind of a, a theory free uh, physics. There's like no theory free mathematics. Like ultimately you need to even explain that as well. Like what is it that you're doing with mathematics if you want to understand the universe? And, and in that sense, yeah, you, you can't actually talk about mathematics without talking about consciousness. <laughs> so, interesting. Huh. Okay. yeah. Um, interesting. A lot, a lot there. Um, uh, in the project, uh, a limitivist I'm doing, like a lot of what I'm trying to do is like remove my ego from the composition of the project. So like a lot of it's just like basically like random numbers that are filtered some way. And like, you know, aside from like creating the algorithm that generates it, it's like, I can kind of just keep on rolling the dice and it'll create new stuff. Um, and so I'm curious if you have thoughts on like, you know, sort of like, uh, computational modes of creativity or, um, you know, like the future of creativity and art when AI comes around and you can just press a button, have a new piece of art generated. And then like, you know, does that make our perceived sense of the value of the art, you know, decrease or um, is that just a whole new paradigm altogether? Or um, curious what you think on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, for sure. Um, I do think that um, AI generated art is uh, coming like it's very like will be really extreme i mean essentially yeah like it's very likely that uh you know ai generated art participating in art competitions in a blinded fashion i think is like very likely to actually like win a lot of competitions and like okay I, I, you know just as like okay chess um there was a threshold where all of a sudden, like no human was able to actually compete against like the best chess algorithms. Mm -hmm. And I think like right now, like, yeah, Magnus Carlsen is just has like stands no chance against, you know, Stockfish or AlphaZero. Um, they're in a completely different level. Um, and like, yeah, that doesn't surprise us anymore. But like for a while, it was yeah hard to imagine. Likewise, I mean, when it comes to kind of like capacity to produce extremely beautiful patterns uh, that humans will enjoy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like we're probably fairly close to the point where, yeah, I mean, like AIs will probably just be better than humans, uh, not only in terms of quantity, but also just quality. Um, now, um, I think like that's not a, that big of an issue. Like, I think there's quite a bit of 
um, well, there's two things that actually attacks. <laughs> First of all, is kind of the ego of the artists, um, <laughs> and like that's uh, yeah, definitely something that uh, mm -hmm. culturally we will need to kind of like deal with. Is like okay, how do we culturally process the fact that yeah, like AI is going to like produce more beautiful stuff than humans? Um, but then the the second thing it interfaces with uh, quite heavily is our cultural construction of the history of art, mm. and that I think is something that uh, we will kind of have to process and kind of like accept and move to a different paradigm. Um, I've had kind of like, yeah, these uh, visions of actually like what kind of a no self conception of art might entail. And uh, essentially, I think we will enter sooner or later into a post historical conception of art. Hmm. So right now, for example, even even right now, like, I think like a lot of artists may think about themselves like, you know, okay, like I might not be producing the most beautiful paintings or I might not be producing the most beautiful music, but I am adding to the historical conversation for like this particular type of art, right? It's kind of like, okay, like I have kind of a secure place in history of art because I at least like explored this style. And there's kind of like this sense of like leaving a mark in the history of art. It's like, okay, yes, I push the boundary in this particular way or this other particular way. And uh, there's almost kind of like this attempt of artists to be embedded in history. It's kind of like, mm -hmm. okay, like, and, and I think, yeah, a lot of like kind of like really random, bizarre, like art that, it, that looks like really strange. Attempt, like, okay, like I cannot be in the beauty department, but like maybe I can compete in this like particular niche and like, at least, you know, have my name in the history of art in this particular way. Um, well, that's a kind of like very ego driven way of like processing what is it that we're doing in art, right? Like, I think like a, a much more, yeah, like egoless approach to art is, hey, uh, aesthetic experiences have intrinsic value and we generate more of those. <laughs> and uh, it actually doesn't matter who generated it. You know, it doesn't matter like who gets to be the author of it. What actually matters is just the intrinsic value of the aesthetic experience. So from that point of view, actually, all of a sudden what you have is kind of like a flip in perspective from how do I leave my name in history to, hey, how do we optimize the valence of people? Which is kind of this, yeah, actually becomes kind of this technical problem. And, and from that perspective, uh, I think we will have maybe uh, a transition into kind of a author less conception of art and more of like art as kind of a something that you can do to the nervous system that mm -hmm. is like therapeutic and intrinsically valuable for sure um yeah i don't know like maybe it's kind of this very buddhist <laughs> transition to like yeah art doesn't be like it's not made by anybody it doesn't belong to anybody it's really just kind of a intrinsically valuable experience that happens yeah, um, when I've mentioned this project to other musicians um, who are, you know, all great musicians, their usual response is like, well, the brain is so, you know, tuned into doing all this and computing all this stuff automatically, so why not use the tool that's right in front of us? And it's like, well, I see what you're saying, but like, yeah, we could we could keep on going with it um, and like generate like systematically more novel things, you know, systematically more beautiful things. So why not? Um, yes, but what else do I have on here? Um, um, I'm curious about your sub pack project. Um, if there have been any developments on that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, 
there's a video you can access uh, from the um, uh, from Imperial um, where Sean uh, essentially one of the people who has worked for Kira uh, last year essentially that was like his main project. Um, basically, we explored kind of um, many different ways of generating patterns in the subpack um, and trying to kind of articulate what is the you know the music theory equivalent for like body vibrations it's a really fascinating like area of research uh however <laughs> it turns out that the state space of patterns that are pleasant <laughs> is actually a lot more restricted than the state space of like musical like you know patterns that are pleasant so like auditory experiences I think there's like a lot more like room for like novelty and and uh, exploration than in like body vibration, and there might be like some like evolutionary reasons why. I mean like um, with music, you can kind of like use a lot of I think like cognitive, um, yeah, like music can be really cognitive. Like there's a lot you can do to kind of like reinterpret sounds and make them kind of like sound good or like produce like interesting moods. There's kind of like a lot of subtlety there. With body vibration, not so much. I think, and that's partly because there's only so many like healthy biorhythms, and like there's like a lot of ways in which your, you know, your 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 peripheral nervous system can be in a bad state. But there's like only relatively few ways for it to be in a really good state. So there's also another like subtlety here, which is that essentially I think that um, um, people who are like really messed up, so essentially people who like their peripheral nervous system is like really poorly calibrated, uh, is like in a chaotic state. It doesn't have kind of a self-organizing principle uh, that is making it uh, go into states of high integration. So like, yeah, basically if you're like very messed up, very, very sick, you can very, very, very much uh, benefit from even very simple patterns. Like even just putting the sub back and having like a 40 Hertz vibration can be like an improvement for a lot of people. But if you are like actually really fit, you've been meditating a lot, you exercise, you're young, um, the 40 hertz is actually going to be like detrimental. Like it's actually going to be a downgrade. So um, it kind of like depends on like what, what your current health is. Uh, but essentially, if you're like really, really healthy, I think that and like happy, there's actually like very few vibrations that like are actually an improvement <laughs> on current state. Um, and uh, yeah, basically that was kind of like challenging. We, we ultimately did find like ways of like producing like really awesome experiences, but it, the state space is not like as interesting as I hoped. Uh, I guess like that might be an important update, but the, the effect sizes are huge though. Like hmm. um, with the final songs that we generated, um, Basically, we had kind of like this track, which was kind of like a neural annealing track, which was like mo mostly focused on kind of like generating like very high levels of energy in a very pleasant way. And like, yeah, that's quite transformative. Like I think like that probably could help quite a few people like process like traumatic experiences. And basically, yeah, the reports that we got is like, yeah, this is kind of equivalent to, <laughs> I don't know, taking like 100 to 150 micrograms of LSD. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and it's even stronger, like if you combine it with weed or something like that. Um, but then uh, we also produce a tr soundtrack, which was like specifically for like loving kindness. And 
that one also was like really healing, but in a very different way. Um, and I think like a lot of people who tried it actually said like, it's the first time they, they ever experienced like that emotion. Uh, and people who have tried like MDMA say like that there's like some significant overlap between that track and the experience of MDMA. I don't think it's like as profound as MDMA, but let's say maybe like 20, 30% of like where, what MDMA does, uh, we were able to replicate. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean like, the, the, I recommend watching that presentation. Like if, if people are like really curious about it, like we explored, for example, like fractal sounds, we explored um, trying to figure out what is the resonant frequency of different parts of the body. Like that's mm -hmm. one of the things that we 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 tried to figure out, um, and yeah, I mean it, it is true that essentially there are like frequency ranges that like resonate much more with your chest or with your stomach, for example. Um, another thing that we did was, uh, yeah, basically like how do you determine whether a vibration will become kind of like part of the foreground or the background of your of your awareness. Um, we figured out that uh, semantic content like is primarily through the audio, whereas like the emotional tone eventually primarily comes from the body vibration. So anyway, there's like a, a, a bunch of things like that. Uh, I recommend watching the presentation, essentially. Uh, so when you have like these songs, like I assume that the like upper frequencies are coming through headphones and then like below a certain threshold is in the body. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, hmm. It makes me think of like those percussion guns that you can like use to like do trigger point release on you know your foot or whatever. It's like just jamming a little silicon thing into your foot and releasing tension. Um, yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, like roughly speaking, yeah. I mean, the full range of frequencies uh, in audio, then between ten and two hundred hertz in body vibration, but primarily, you know, primarily between like twenty and eighty, I would say. And then uh, primarily between like five and 40 hertz for like uh, visual uh, stimulation. So yeah, basically there's like different frequency ranges and actually, yeah, the lowest vibration, the lowest frequency uh, is for the stroboscopic stimulation. Gotcha. Interesting. Um, I need to pee real quick. Do you need to pee? Uh, yeah, sure. Cool. I'll take it. Let me quick just break. pause this real quick. Yep. Okay, um, so I've, I've been reading Dune recently, and um, I, I had some questions about animal consciousness that came up um, in thinking about it, and uh, you know, obviously this is all speculative, so um, I was thinking about, you know, that idea of, like, the maker and it being this humongous worm thing, but, like, what would the valence of, like, a Shai Halud be, like, um, because I assume, just because it's such a grand scale, like, how would like a tiny scale um, animal, you know, translate to a huge version of that? And like, it's ancient, but like, does that mean that it has like complex cognitive processes? Processes? Uh, what would you think about this type of thought experiment? Yeah, I mean, I think like the, you know, equivalent would be like asking what is the consciousness of a whale, and mm -hmm. it's obviously an open question. But like, I mean, yeah, we're talking about. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, a brain that is like larger than a human. I mean, like it's a uh, yeah, an insane, insane thing. Um, my suspicion is that yeah, they're actually hyper conscious. Like, and it's not necessarily that like the experience feels very intense, but like there's a lot of experience, and like 
there's like actually kind of like an important distinction that like the intensity of experience has more to do with kind of the concentration of energy <laughs> like how dense it is hmm. but you can actually have like a very large experience that feels very loose and like it's still a lot of qualia but it just doesn't feel intense so it could very well be that you know a whale has like a very large experience but it feels like not particularly like intense from the inside even though it is a lot of qualia it's just that there's like a lot of space <laughs> where to lay out that qualia and uh i mean I, I i do suspect that i mean essentially consciousness has like two main roles one is like a raw causal effect and the second one is like computational effect so uh it's very well it may very well be the case that uh with a, a whales for example that the causal effect is actually much more important than the computational i mean of course you know they have like complex societies they have you know they have to manage uh, you know like a very big body there's like a lot that you know the central nervous system has to compute but it, it does feel like it, the brain is way larger than you know you would require in order to kind of like manage the social relationships you know like you know the, the size of a of the brain of a crow you know would probably suffice i don't know for kind of the the complexity of societies of, of, of whales. I mean, again, like we, we don't know, but, uh, but then there's also just like the raw causal uh, effect. And like, I think like, yeah, I mean, a world simulation generated by a brain needs to be of a certain size if it wants to influence a nervous system of a certain size. So um, it's almost kind of like, yeah, if you want to, hmm, how, how do you mean, how to say this? Like, if you want to uh, sculpt like a very, very, very large sculpture with a clay um, and do it fairly quickly, you might need like very large hands. Like even though the sculpture in the end might end up being like fairly simple, just the volume of it uh, will require kind of like this very large equipment. Uh, likewise, like to command a huge whale, uh, you might require like a very large experience with kind of like a large surface area with a uh, with which it's going to be interfacing with like motor areas. So that, that would be kind of like, yeah, very strong, like causal effect. Like it needs a lot of actual power, you know, like a lot of like work, <laughs> work per second. Um, and likewise, I, I would imagine one of these uh, huge worms, like they may not require a lot of, uh, you know, intricate computational power from consciousness, but they may require like a lot of energy in order to actually kind of command in a coherent fashion all of these you know huge nervous system so in that sense you you could actually expect it to have like a very very powerful experience but very simple in nature so um an example i i, I could use is like there are like for example states of consciousness like on lsd uh where the experience itself may be like fairly simple. Um, I mean, for example, like a very positive trip might be one where like you, you, you're meditating on, on loving kindness and like it feels like you're radiating this energy from your chest. Like, I mean, in, in my interpretation, there's like still something that is happening in your world simulation. You're not actually radiating energy, but it feels like you're radiating a lot of energy. So like that would be like a very simple, very intense, um, and very powerful experience and likewise like if you were to kind of like look mind meld 
with a with a whale or like with one of these huge worms it may be that like from the inside the experience is very simple but it feels like that there's kind of like this very simple thing that is going on but it's like going on in a very very bright and shiny way uh influencing a very large space interesting um thinking about the essay what is it like to be a shy halud you know oh <laughs> nice yeah yeah um, <laughs> Um, well, I guess uh, just a few quick things as we wrap up. Um, I'm curious, uh, what can basically like, you know, quasi-scientifically minded musicians do for QRI? <laughs> yeah, great question. Uh, well, uh, they could definitely submit data points for the tracer tool. That's, uh, well, everybody can do that. But uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, like... Uh, musicians are famous for uh, being able to have kind of like, you know, very good eye-hand co coordination while, you know, heavily intoxicated. So I think probably <laughs> musicians are actually, you know, best equipped to kind of uh, do one of these experiments. Um, I don't know. I, mean, I, I say jokingly, but uh, um, more broadly, though, I think like producing really interesting valence effects with uh the subpack uh like if we can like expand the range of things that sound good or feel good that would be great i mean definitely i would recommend like yeah watching the presentation by by sean and i think like we will actually probably redo that presentation and put it on the main qri channel just to make sure that yeah that that, that content is out there uh like high quality um probably also um writing songs about consciousness i mean i, I think like <laughs> yeah like an album about eliminativism is uh, pretty good uh you know an album about the binding problem would be also awesome playing with that kind of a exploring how um, uh, local binding happens in a musical space is kind of a, an interesting thing to to try out like in what way or for example like spatial music like what are the rules for uh different sounds to couple with one another when you're like kind of exploring space and time um you know figuring out that like on on the one hand yes that's kind of like a very rigorous you know psychophysics task but on the other hand being like playful and exploring uh will also help kind of like map out what are the rules for local binding in the auditory space and i don't, I don't think that's like understood so like yeah that's definitely something a musician could uh could explore uh, other things would be like, I would really love kind of a, a no nonsense list of songs that like legitimately sound really interesting in different states of consciousness. And I mean, the problem though is that th there's kind of like an annealing bias here, here that like, if you ask around like, okay, what is the best song to listen on LSD, you will get like, okay, whatever people listen to on LSD that caused the strong like emotional transformation. And uh, it's less, uh, you know, what actually, you know, sensorially is like actually really interesting on that state. And it's more kind of like what was like personally transformative for that person in particular. So like, yeah, basically kind of like a no nonsense approach to this is like, like, okay, like what is the actual sensorial effects of different states of consciousness and what are like patterns that you have actually experienced and, and noticed? Um, and information uh, of that kind, I think, would be really helpful for, for Collier research more broadly. Um, for example, like observations of the sort of um, this song produces the illusion 
of a high frequency pitch if you're on LSD, but like it doesn't if you're sober. Like that would be a fascinating like piece of data. Uh, anything of that sort can actually be used for psychedelic cryptography, right? Like, and and it would be very very interested in that. Like, what are the rules for producing sounds that you can only listen to or patterns you can only notice on an exotic state of consciousness? Anything of that sort. Um, I would be very curious to, to to have somebody explore essentially. That's a that's a I mean the whole psychedelic cryptography thing is fascinating. So um, I'll I'll have to read over that again and think about how that would <laughs> translate to music. Um, yep. When I first had binaural beats explained to me like you know a decade or so ago, like somebody introduced them as a digital drug basically, and I was like, <laughs> okay. Um, but I'm curious if in that sort of spirit, if there's anything in the sort of like non-pharmacological realm like more in like just like the sonic realm or visual realm that could be used um as like valence tech yeah i mean i think like yeah the the light sound and body vibration i mean that would be and i mean the effect size is pretty significant i mean as i mentioned like people essentially do say that like it can help them process like difficult emotional experiences process trauma kind of like allow them to get over something like a breakup, <laughs> things like that. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I'm considering kind of like doing more research on it, but like, it's really not like the, the current priority at the moment. There's like a, several other projects that we're trying to wrap up. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think like, there's just like so much more to explore in the light, sound and body vibration space and a lot of like really crazy, really fun uh, valence effects. Um, Mm, I think there's like definitely still a lot of uh, room to 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 grow in uh, VR for like hacking valence, mm -hmm. uh, especially I think like if you have like eye tracking because with eye tracking you can essentially account for kind of like saccadic movements and there's like a yeah. lot of like, really tricky fun things you can do with that. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a whole conversation, but yeah, I mean, essentially I think like VR. Not in the conventional way of like, oh, let's show you like a very pretty thing, but actually in a much more like, oh, let's actually hack your visual system. <laughs> uh, something to follow along for the saccades or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You can do really bizarre things like creating possible colors, for example. Like, oh. yeah, like if you, if you um, uh, show the boundary between like blue and yellow, for example, and uh, with eye tracking, you reposition where. Uh, the boundary is so that like you're always looking at the precise boundary essentially your your retina kind of gets tired of it and something that starts happening is that the blue and the yellow start to bleed into each other and they combine mm -hmm. and they generate a qualia that is actually impossible to experience otherwise so um yeah that's called the uh, impossible colors and uh yeah i mean that's that's a fascinating thing i mean, I mean obviously that it's not like a valence effect per se. Like it, it has valence implications because it's like so novel. It will like <laughs> surprise you and it, you're going to have a good time. But <laughs> but I think like there's like much more interesting things. Like for example, interfacing with the with the harmonics of the visual system. Like um, particular ways of like flickering, uh, doing panning effects can, yeah, kind of like generate like an MDMA-like quality. Uh, so yeah, th I think there's like a lot of room for growth in, in, in that space. Awesome. And last thing I'll ask is basically um, a very similar question to what I just asked like a second ago, which is like, how could musicians and artists um, help with EA causes? Oh, without, with EA causes. donating a bunch of money. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's a great question. Um, hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, traditionally, musicians and artists help with causes by writing songs about them, um, kind of uh, embedding that ideology into their music. I don't know if EA is, I don't, I don't know what we, <laughs> like, what would it look like for like, Existential a wood... <laughs> exactly. What, what would be kind of the Woodstock of EA? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's viable, possible, like, I think the Asperger's quotient is just too high <laughs> for it to actually kind of like congeal into, yeah, some kind of a, I don't know, hedonic vibe. It's a, uh, intellectual for that but i don't know do you have any question um, yeah uh, have you like seen any music that rationalists listen to because like the only music i'm aware of rationalists being into is um from listening to the um harry potter uh podcast version where he ends with skaven and i'm like this is the only time i've ever heard of a rationalist talking about music skaven yeah some composer i have no idea okay okay (laughs) yeah I just get the sense that they don't listen to music. Most trads, maybe, but I, I don't know if there's any clear clustering. I mean, I, I would probably say like much higher rate of classical music, probably than okay. on the average, like than the general population. But like conventional classical music, or like like modern, wacky, contemporary, irrit- irritating stuff. Uh, probably both. Okay. Yeah, I, I would I would suspect there's like a much higher than average or like much higher than like standard, like kind of general population. Yeah, I mean, mostly because like a lot of these are kind of a, I don't know, gifted kids, probably a lot of like them, like did a lot of a, like, yeah, like musical training, I, I'd imagine much higher than average. But that's not super interesting. So hmm. I'm yeah, not sure. I yeah. asked uh, Brian Tomasic some questions via email, and um, one of them was basically like, how does art fit into your life personally? And it was an interesting response because it was basically like, I watch TV when I exercise. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. But like, he doesn't really listen to that much. Like, he enjoys music, he enjoys poetry, but he's like, I feel like I might as well do other practical things. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be highly modulated by the Asperger's quotient <laughs> and uh, and it's fairly high in the community. So I don't think, yeah, it's, it's not, it, there's no like strong emphasis on art. And actually I would probably worry, like if it starts to become like very art driven, it probably means it was like taken over by some like sociopaths with like artistic <laughs> skills. Like, I mean, it's like the same as like, um, uh, yeah, like this is a kind of like a funny observation. Like um, if you look into like the the big event where they released i believe like windows 95 or windows xp i think it was like 95 um uh yeah basically you have like all of these like microsoft engineers come on stage you can find this on youtube um kind of like dancing and like bill gates is like trying to dance and like you can notice like they I know what you're talking about yeah yeah they have no idea how to dance and like it's not only that they have not practiced but like you can tell you know their nervous system it's just not coupling properly to the music and like i think that's yeah basically the the average um autism or, or asperger's spectrum which is way too high for for like dancing as a group um high aq low enq exactly exactly yeah yeah 100 uh, uh, and and the thing though is that if 
I go to kind of like a, a, a you know a machine learning startup or something, and I see the engineers dance and they're dancing really well. I would like negatively update on how good the startup is. Like I would, I, I would actually suspect like yeah, they're probably just uh, marketing. Like I don't, I don't actually believe they have like real, actual you know innovative technology. Um, because those things are just so anti-correlated. So I, I actually, I would worry. Like if there's a lot of like artistic competence in EA, it probably means like EA went to trash. Like it's just not, <laughs> there's no systematizers there anymore. <laughs> gotcha. Interesting. That's funny. Cool. Well, um, I'll let you get out of here. Uh, Andres, thanks so much for talking to me. Thanks for coming on for the first round two uh, for prime number 43. Um, <laughs> uh, it was enjoyable to talk to you. And uh, yeah, you're always welcome back. Thank you. Likewise, uh, was awesome uh, participating. And uh, yeah, talk to you another time. Sounds good. All right. Adios.